Blaise Pascal was one of the greatest figures in 17th century French intellectual life. And this is a remarkable achievement. First, because of the fact that he died young. He didn't live to reach his 40th birthday. And moreover, 17th century France was an extraordinarily dynamic uh, intellectual milieu. It is the age of Moliere and Racine, great philosophers and great literary figures. And Pascal somehow figures in between the scientists and the literary artists and the religious thinkers. In some respects, he's a man who can accomplish more than one kind of intellectual uh, goal or, or seek more than one kind of intellectual achievement. Another interesting element of Pascal or quality that Pascal has is that he has a sort of religious mania. He uh, is not just a devout believer in God, but he is an exceedingly doubt. Uh, he is an exceedingly devout believer, and he took upon himself the idea of converting as many of the intellectual figures of his time and place to his conception of Christian religiosity, to the perhaps the detriment of his later intellectual reputation. He had gifts as a scientist and as a mathematician, and he gave up science and mathematics after he had a religious experience which fundamentally changed the course of his life. Now, he was a mathematical prodigy as a boy. He had been educated by his father. His father had considerable competence in mathematics, and the kid was remarkable. Everyone said, he's going to be our next great mathematical figure, perhaps one of the great in the West. When he was in his teens, people used to compare him with Pythagoras, which is great praise, without a doubt. Uh, at the age of 17, he, designed, uh, he wrote a book on conic sections, which is a remarkable achievement for a teenager. At 19, he designed a workable computer, and at 21, he built it. And when you consider the fact that we're talking about mi the mid-16th century, or the mid-17th century, that's a remarkable intellectual achievement. The kid was really good at math, and he used his mathematical gifts to kind of elbow his way into the scientific life of France. And he made original contributions to things like the theory of the vacuum and the idea of air pressure. He did a number of important experiments on the nature of the barometer and the nature of air's pressure, things like that. And he was well on his way to becoming one of the main intellectual figures of the Enlightenment, particularly because his scientific and mathematical impulses were so strong that he fit right into the general trend of the age of reason. This tendency, this trajectory that he had early on in life continued until uh, he began to become more and more concerned with religious issues. He became what we might call the scientist of salvation. Someone who is able not just to dabble in science but to make important and original contributions to, scientific and to science and mathematics. But in addition, he's also able to write some of the most profound and moving religious casuistry of his century. Now, in 1646, Pascal became a Jansenist. And for those of you unfamiliar with the, the details of 17th century French religious life, Jansenism is, a, is a, a sort of heresy of Catholicism, which attempts to do many of the things that the Protestant Reformation did, to move away from the worldliness and corruption that had seeped into the church, and to try and force people back to an original and kind of primary devotion to God and submission to God's will. It emphasized good works, which is something that for the most part 
Uh, the Protestant, particularly the Lutheran tradition, did not. On the other hand, it also emphasizes penitent, uh, penitence and the recognition of man's sinful nature. It's one of the few religions, with, or it's one of the few religious movements within Catholicism at the time that tried to make Catholicism more rigorous. Those who want to make it more rigorous often withdrew from the church entirely. The Jansenists were kind of in between. They had certain allegiances to the church which prevented them from wanting to break with it. On the other hand, they wanted to reform it in some respects from within. They wanted, for example, to institute three Lents every year, three 40-day periods of penitence and fasting and all that as a way of atoning for one's sins. So if Catholicism is a kind of rigorous religion with regard to atonement and things like that, Jansenism wants to take that and take it even further. So a combination of good works, piety, and penitence for sin is what Jansenism is all about, and Descartes bought into it when he was exposed to certain Jansenist thinkers, and this comes early in his life. He's only in his 20s when he buys into this. And he begins to be associated with Port Royal and the main Jansenist thinkers that are living there and working there. And he becomes one of the great figures in defending Jansenism against the attacks of the Jesuits. There had been a considerable amount of infighting within the church between those like the Jansenists that want to reform it and drive uh, Catholicism into a more uh, a more otherworldly and more rigorous approach to sin and atonement, and those who wanted to defend the status quo. So uh, one of the most first important religious texts that Pascal wrote was called the Provincial Letters. The Provincial Letters, he attacks the lies and the hypocrisy that are entailed in the Jesuit defense of things within the church that are obviously evil, that are obviously corrupt. And it wins wide applause and wide praise, which made the anonymous author of the provincial letters, uh, a persona non grata within church circles. Now, although Pascal was a great scientific mind and a profound mathematical mind, his fame nowadays rests on a book that he never managed to complete. And he intended to title the book An Apology for the Christian Religion, but we have it today in the form of a series of notes towards a book which was called The Pensées. Now, what Pascal tries to do in the Pensee is, is to defend his particular conception of Christian orthodoxy and Christian religiosity. And the reason that he feels impelled to abandon his scientific inquiries and abandon his mathematical researches is because he has had a religious experience which transcends all the other experiences of his life and which make his life turn a corner which he can never go back upon. He called this night the Night of Fire. He's actually good enough to tell us exactly the date that it happened. It was uh, November 23rd, 1654. And around midnight, late in the evening, one night, he had a two-hour reverie in which he uh, claims, and it's not very clear what he claims, except that something very important and very mystical and very theological happened to him. But what appears to be the case is that he had direct and immediate apprehension of the divinity. At least that's what Pascal thought was going on. Perhaps nowadays we might describe it differently and in a more pejorative way. But then he thought that finally God had revealed himself in that evening. And he, he, the, uh, the notes that he wrote at the time were kind of incoherent, perhaps what you would expect after directly encountering God. But he talks about God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Moses. He's obviously in an ecstatic situation. And it's a very odd kind of discourse for a mathematician to enter into. Since mathematics is the clearest and most precise of the 
sciences or the, the kind of mental activities that were undertaken in the Enlightenment, and in some respects talking about religion, particularly direct illumination of the nature of God it's, uh, himself, is in some respects the opposite pole. In other words, mathematics is clear, it depends in some respects on the Cartesian idea of clear and distinct ideas, the idea of a point and a line and things like that in the case of geometry. Well, one of the intrinsic qualities of talking about one's internal religious experiences is that it's the most murky and vague and nebulous kind of discourse, and that he should commit himself wholeheartedly on the basis of one experience to this sort of discourse suggests that something very peculiar, something very intriguing has happened to him, and whether we accept its validity or not, it's certainly worth our inquiry and consideration. And you'll certainly find that he's the kind of thinker that will be worth your while in encountering. Uh, the Pensées is a beautiful book. It is, in some respects, a very disturbing book. It is a frightening book, but it is also a very profound and intriguing book. It's obviously the product of a man who feels a certain tension between the intellectual part of his soul or his mind or his psyche and the spiritual part and this tension between the intellect and the spirit is extremely fruitful in intriguing ideas and in rather pithy descriptions of the human condition. Now after having the night of fire, after directly apprehending the deity, he abandons all worldly concerns. He gives himself up to good works, study of the Bible, the writing of Christian apologetics, and morbid introspection. One comes away with the sense that however brilliant Pascal was, he was a profoundly disturbed individual, a kind of a gifted kook. I mean, there's a certain connection. I mean, you'll often find the people that are gifted at that level, I mean, I mean truly outstanding within a, you know, a hundred thousand or a million people, often have a certain degree of imbalance in their psyche. And when I read passages from the Pensées, you will certainly come away with the conclusion that this guy is half crazy also one of the great thinkers of his age, we have to kind of take the good with the bad or the incoherent with the lucid. Now, we have to also think about the intellectual milieu in which Pascal is working. 17th century France is a happening place. All kinds of interesting intellectual stuff is going on there. Science is moving forward apace. Mathematics is doing nicely. Engineering is advancing. Literature, we get Moliere and Racine, classical French drama. There's a great many advances that are being made. We're, at the, we're riding the crest of the Enlightenment here. But there are two groups of people that Pascal is interested in talking to. In other words, he didn't write this book for peasants, for the average illiterate or quasi-literate person. He thought that religious truth was accessible to people regardless of their level of education, but he has a particular audience in mind with these kind of striking and rather, uh, uh, rather pithy and kind of somewhat unpleasant descriptions of the human condition. In the first place, he wants to argue against Cartesianism and the entire tradition of Promethean rationalism that comes from Descartes. If you, think, if you know the philosophy of Descartes, what Descartes was trying to do is found a philosophy using skepticism as a medium which would be irrefutable and unquestionable. In other words, what Descartes wanted was to create certainty out of skepticism. And if you're familiar with, for example, the discourse on method, right, where he tries to kind of bootstrap himself into absolute certainty, it's clear enough that what he wants to do is allow for un the unfettered development of human reason. This represents the tradition in Western culture that is derived from Athens. And it, 
if it doesn't denigrate religion, it treats religion as somehow superfluous or more or less irrelevant to its program of developing free and unfettered human reason. The problem in Pascal's view with Cartesianism, and his father was involved in intellectual circles that discussed Cartesianism thoroughly, that elaborated the ideas of Descartes, well, the problem from Pascal's view with Cartesianism is that it is essentially hubristic. In other words, it tries to usurp God's place by replacing knowledge of scripture and knowledge of divinity through revelation with unaided human reason. And the problem is that you can't find out about God and about things divine by reasoning. Reasoning by itself is not sufficient. Whereas if you talk to Descartes or any of the latter Cartesians, all of them would say, well, look, if we're not going to get it from reason, where shall we get it? I guess Pascal's answer would be, well, when you have the night of fire and God comes in and talks to you, then you'll get it. But until then, you are, in fact, a pernicious influence on culture because you give people the impression that reason by itself is sufficient. Um, you could say that it's, it's the old conflict between the children of Athens and the children of Jerusalem, or perhaps those who like the myth of Job and those who like the myth of Prometheus. Descartes was a very Promethean figure. By reasoning alone, I will be able to figure out the ultimate certainty and then found the other disciplines, the other branches of knowledge. Pascal wants to move against that. He thinks it's arrogant. He thinks it endangers uh, the spiritual welfare of the people that buy into it. And he thinks it enervates the culture and makes people hard-hearted and cruel. He thinks it also has a bad moral effect. So Pascal is looking at a general critique of Cartesianism and, by implication, he is offering a general critique of, the, of the, the rise of modern science that is so characteristic of the thought of the Enlightenment. So Descartes is after, I mean, or rather, Pascal is after big game in his attack on the Cartesians. And what he wants to show is that religious illumination, God's uh, word in the form of scripture, are necessary to our understanding of things. Reason alone is not enough. He has a second group of people a second intellectual tendency that he wants to criticize, and this is Montaigne and Montaigne's skepticism. Those of you that know the essays of Montaigne, they're wonderful pieces, I'm very fond of them, um, will know that Montaigne was a kind of urbane, witty, skeptical fellow who decided to withdraw from active public and political life and engage in a contemplative around with his books, write his essays in his tower, and have a minimum amount of bother with the world around him. In Pascal's view, Montaigne's skepticism, while it's less arrogant than the Promethean rationalism of Descartes, in fact leads to complacency, and complacency leads to self-indulgence. One of the problems with the over-educated, perhaps too sophisticated uh, types that drifted into, a, into Montaigne's skepticism is that skepticism very quickly becomes passivity and complacency, and this passivity and complacency rather quickly turns into boredom, and that turns into self-indulgence and various kinds of sin. So if you think about Salon society in 17th century France, we had rigorous, hubristic Cartesians, and we had kind of dilettante, over-refined followers of Montaigne, and between them, between their arrogance and their complacency, we have real moral danger. What Pascal wants to do is to show the insufficiency of Cartesianism, the insufficiency of Montaigne's skepticism, and blaze a new path that satisfies the intellectual demands of both camps and shows the intellectual defects of both approaches. Last night when I had, a, I had a dinner with Professor Brombert, 
And he gave me a great idea about this. I'm just going to steal it shamelessly. He called Pascal an intellectual terrorist. Isn't that a great idea? I mean, whether it's true or not, it's just a great idea. It's a beautiful locution. No, he's a smart man. And it's very true. What Pascal wishes to do to us in the Pensees is to rouse us to a kind of frenzied despair. We are supposed to see the ugliness, the depravity, the misery, the wretchedness of the human condition. And by driving us to despair, he hopes to, maintain, he hopes to force the passive and complacent followers of Montaigne to start a religious search that elsewise they won't do. Unless you rouse these self-indulgent people, these withdrawn, isolated, skeptical people, to a sort of religious despair, to a frenzy of misery, they're not going to do anything. They're going to sit on their butts and stay in their tower and write essays, indulge themselves one way or another. He says no, or Pascal's idea is no. You have to make them fear for the good of their soul. Make them fear the possibility that they're not going to get what religion might offer to them. In other words, you have to show them how wretched they are. Pascal wants to inspire in the reader a kind of terror, a kind of morbid hatred of the kind of nuts and bolts, tables and chairs, facts of the human condition. He wants to make you feel that if this is all there is, I might as well just go put a bullet in my brain. Uh, what is it, I believe in the one in an earlier lecture we saw, that the only real philosophical question is whether to commit suicide or not? Well, Pascal's answer would be that if God doesn't exist, it might as well. Matter of fact, this is such a wretched condition that we're in that unless there's some sort of salvation, unless there's some end towards which we might aspire, the emptiness, the wretchedness, the meaninglessness of the human condition should drive us directly to despair and from despair to suicide. I know that it's often, it seems a very contemporary sounding idea, the idea that life is meaningless. Actually, it's a really old idea. It just gets recycled every generation or two when people have a sort of reaction to some sort of dogmatism. So although it sounds like the idea that would be generated specifically in the 20th century after the horrors of, say, the Second World War, in fact, it's a perennial human temptation the idea that life is wretched and meaningless. We see it in 17th century France. You can see it much earlier than that. You can go all the way back to the origins of the Western tradition. It is not uh, a one-time fact that we happen to drift into into the 20th century. In fact, it is an ever-present possibility for the human condition. Nihilism awaits, and it kind of calls us with its dark and sparkling hands. And Pascal wants to point out to us that if there's no way to avoid the conclusion that this is all there is, that there's simply tables and chairs, and day and night, and one day after another, despair and misery, and ultimately suicide, would be a sensible response. Pascal also wants to drive Cartesians to despair. And he wishes to drive them to a different sort of despair, because Cartesians are not likely to be complacent and withdrawn. They're likely to be active men who manipulate nature. In other words, you could think of Descartes and the Cartesian tradition as being the source of what in this century is called technological man. In other words, Cartesians are good scientists and mathematicians whose formulae and whose figuring and whose calculation allow them to push nature around in all kinds of interesting and entertaining ways. And Cartesians and the latter-day kind of engineering tradition that comes out of that, um, they entertain themselves not by withdrawing and not by becoming skeptical, but rather by becoming dogmatic about what they know and then pushing nature around until they die. What, Descartes, what Pascal wants to say about the Cartesians is that we force them into despair by showing them, A, that a scientific and mathematical knowledge are not the only kinds of knowledge, and B, if they were the only kinds of knowledge, such a life would not be worth living. That it amounts essentially to the unexamined life that Socrates warned us about.
So Pascal is trying to kind of um, ignite a sort of intellectual terror, an intellectual misery in people who are blissfully unaware of how wretched they are. Uh, a very dubious, or if not quite dubious, a, a very unpleasant program. Right? But he's not, again, in some respects, like Swift, he's not here to, to get our approval. He's here to make us better. And if making it better is no fun, well, that's the way it is. Now, in distinguishing or in trying to avoid the hubris and complacency that Montaigne and Descartes offer us, Pascal makes a distinction between two kinds of knowledge. He says that there's a kind of knowledge in which antiquity or tradition is absolute, and there's a kind of knowledge in which reason is absolute. In other words, for those branches of knowledge in which antiquity or tradition is our standard, there's no sense in bringing in reason. On the other hand, for those kinds of knowledge in which our foundation is reasoning, then there's no sense in bringing in tradition. Let me give an example. Think of the development of physical science that we get with the Enlightenment. Well, there, pretty clearly we have undermined Aristotelian physics, and while the medievals would probably have said, well, look, we don't take your modern science seriously because we have the tradition, the authority of Aristotle, Pascal would say, no, you're making a mistake here, a category mistake. Scientific knowledge is dependent upon reason, not authority. Any argument made from authority is contrary to the nature of mathematical or scientific or phys natural scientific thinking. That's the proper domain of reason. Where the Cartesians make their mistake is to think that that's all the knowledge there is, and that's the only way to approach knowledge, as with reason as a kind of foundation. So in mathematics and physical science, we no longer make appeals to, tradi to tradition. We do experiments. We perform calculations. We don't say, Aristotle said the following. That's no longer acceptable. The other side of the coin is that Pascal believes that there are certain kinds of knowledge, and here I give examples of law, theology, and history, in which the authority of tradition is canonical. There's no point, in, in other words, in applying reason to the authority of scripture. It is outside the domain of, of reason. We have scriptures which are handed down from generation to generation. The attempt to rationally criticize these only ends up undermining them. And that's not a fault of scripture. That's a fault of the Cartesian insistence that all knowledge is knowledge based on, ration, uh, on reasoning rather than knowledge based upon authority. The proper domain of authority is those things that are inaccessible to reason. Theology and the criticism of scripture is such an example. He thinks history is an example. He also thinks that law is an example. I doubt very much that any contemporary theologian or historian would be willing to accept this distinction now. But it's fundamental to the way Pascal thinks about knowledge and the way he thinks about the intellectual milieu in 17th century France. So we have these two kinds of knowledge. And in the Pensees, among, and remember, these were written down, incidentally, it's not a, a finished, organized book. What we have our 700 or 900 scraps of paper in which his ideas are written down. It has a kind of an overall coherence. Uh, some scholars have worked very diligently on the problem of how to organize these things. And we have a rough and ready understanding of how we would move from one to the other. Although, of course, the, the interstices between ideas, we don't have any connection. You can kind of connect the dots mentally. And he says uh, there's a rough outline of what he intended to do in the book, this apology for the Christian religion that he would have turned out if he had lived a little longer. He says, part one will be a discussion of the wretchedness of man without God. Now, all of his thinking depends on that. If human life 
without the deity and without salvation and without heaven and hell, without moral order that's divinely sanctioned, if that's happy and if that's good, then all of Pascal is irrelevant and this is a really stupid argument. Pascal takes as a dogma, as a kind of a fundamental psychological fact, the idea that man without God is in a wretched state. Uh, T.S. Eliot once uh, talked about the, I think it was the hollow men, where we described them as being distracted from distraction by distraction. What a lovely line. It's a beautiful thought. Uh, it's very much along the Pascalian line. To live in a world without God that has no moral order, in which case we move from one whim to another, is just a way of distracting you from the fact that the human condition is wretched. Maybe a good part of Christian piety is dependent upon this. Well, he, he tries to show us, first of all, and this is where the intellectual terrorism comes in, that it is a fact that man is wretched without God. And there's a lovely little passage. Where is it, 36? Consider this uh, as one of his thoughts, uh, kind of the morbid introspection involved. <clears throat> he says, Anyone who does not see the vanity of the world is very vain himself. So who does not see it apart from young people whose lives are all noise, diversions, and thoughts for the future? But take away their diversion, and you will see them bored to extinction. They feel their nullity without recognizing it. For nothing could be more wretched than to be intolerably depressed as soon as one is reduced to introspection with no means of diversion. There is a, an unpleasant possibility that that's the case. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the work of Kierkegaard will notice a certain spiritual resonance here. Uh, if you have read either or, where he talks about boredom, um, yes, the boredom, the nothingness that pervades the world is commonly a goad to the kind of deep and profound piety that we see in the, kind of the most extreme of the Christian apologists. So this is the kind of intellectual terror he wants to instill. He wants to say when you pull away all the new flavors and all the new tastes and all the new experiences, all the places you, you might go to and all the things you might do, when you take all these diversions and distractions away, what are you and what do you amount to? Are you really happy? If you're really happy, then why don't you just stay in your room? Hmm. Why is it you want to constantly de deceive yourself by giving yourself new flavors, tastes, and experiences? Because your life is full of nothing, and you do your best not to let yourself know that. Now, that's intellectual terrorism. I mean, this is a really unpleasant account of the human condition. Now, he wants to, to attack the idea that people can be happy without God. And he says, look how wretched your condition really is. And part two of his book was going to be about the happiness with God. And he doesn't, he cover, doesn't cover that nearly as eloquently as he does the negative qualities of being without God. But if we can concede the point to him that if we're wretched without God, without God, when we finally do admit God into our lives, if there is such a thing, that we would be happy. I imagine being all-powerful and omniscient and all such things, that he would have the capacity of making us happy as well. Let's concede him that point. The next part of the book, this is what's interesting. He says that nature is corrupt, and this is proved by nature. In other words, think about what we were talking when I made the decision between the knowledges that are dependent and contingent upon reason and those that are contingent upon authority. Well, what he's going to do, or what he claims to intend to do, is to investigate nature, to show that nature, in the physical sense, is corrupt, and that just the rational and reasonable inquiry into nature will show us that, will show us the moral vacuum of the physical world. Maybe so. I mean, here I, I think he's on kind of thin ice. I think it's a, it sounds to me like more or less an arbitrary distinction on his part. But let's play along with, these, with his neuroses, because it's very fruitful to see what comes of it. The final part, after he shows us that nature is corrupt, he's going to say, there is a redeemer, and this is proved by scripture. You see, we've moved now from the kinds of knowledge, knowledge of the natural world, which is dependent upon reason, 
to a different kind of knowledge which is dependent upon authority and tradition. So the proof that there is a redeemer doesn't come from any rational process. It's not that kind of knowledge. The proof that there is a redeemer comes from your acceptance of scripture. So far, so good. Not an entirely plausible argument, but we'll come to the, the little scorpion sting at the end of this when I move to the wager that he wants to make. You see, Pascal has a fascinating part in the, the pensées about a wager between an atheist and a, and a religious believer, or between uh, an atheist and a religious believer, and they both make the wager in a way with God or the universe. And this is connected with his earlier mathematical researches. <clears throat> when he was a young man, he had a brief, wild period. And of course, he felt morbidly guilty about that all for the rest of his life. That was one of the sins he was atoning for. Among the things he did, he worked out the theory of probability. He made original and important contributions to the mathematics of probability, which hadn't been worked out then. And of course, the best application, or at least the most immediate application of the theory of probability is gambling. So the fact that he furthered the gambling and vice of the world was one more sin that he had to throw upon the heap of sins he had developed. He is tremendously neurotic. And the fact that he had helped people gamble, helped people engage in a life of vice, made him feel all the more that he had an obligation to undo the harm that he had done. So he said, or I assume that he thought something along the line that if I have mathematical ability and I can work out the theory of probability and make important contributions to it, perhaps I can use these mathematical gifts to formulate a sort of religious teaching or a kind of introduction to religion, to religious thought, that will improve the world rather than harm it, that will increase virtue rather than vice. What he does in the process of extending the realm of virtue rather than vice is develop what's called Pascal's wager, wonderful part. And here's how it works. You could think of Pascal's wager as being essentially theology for accountants. Right, in other words, it's for those calculating kind of, uh, how can I put it, uh, those sort of calculating, uh, self-interested, heteronymous minds that want to worship, or that are willing to worship God or willing to accept the existence of God, not because of some tremendous spiritual illumination, not because they, they've been inspired by some change in their experience, but rather because it looks like a good bet. What Pascal ultimately shows us is that the smart money is on God. And we'll talk about whether we like that idea or not, but let me explain to you what the, idea, what the wager amounts to. Start with a nice mathematical proposition. Either God exists or he doesn't. Either A or not A. That's all there is to it. We'll go with the law of the excluded middle. He either exists or he doesn't. It's kind of a mathematical distinction. Now, you have to bet. In other words, you can't not bet. You have to decide whether you believe in God or not. So let's see what the, what the smart bet is and how, what sort of stance you should take in a condition of uncertainty. Well, if you're an atheist, suppose you bet that God doesn't exist. Okay, well, if you're right, well, then your life is meaningless and wretched, and you've got nothing to lose because your life is meaningless and wretched. And if the world is wretched and it's a moral void and we live in a kind of, of a horrifying, aimless, meandering towards extinction, hell, why not do it now? What do you got to lose? On the other hand, if you're an atheist and God is really, exist, really does exist, down to the pit, down to the bottom, you're going to get the damnation you so richly deserve. So if you're an atheist, at best, you end up with a meaningless, aimless, arbitrary life, which holds no attraction for anyone because it's entirely without value. If you're an atheist and you're wrong and God really exists, well, you get damned for all time, and that's just what you deserve. Now let's think about the possibility of being a religious believer. If you're a religious believer, 
and it turns out that there's no such thing as God, well, then you have one mistaken uh, belief in your life, but since life is arbitrary and meaningless and pointless anyway, what difference does it make? We hold all kinds of preposterous beliefs, and if it turns out that this particular belief of yours is false, well, really you have nothing to lose. Life didn't amount to anything anyway. So if you believe something ridiculous and kooky, you're dead anyway, what's it to you? On the other hand, if you are a religious believer, and God really does exist, up we go, right? Away we go. The smart money is on God. I mean, you have nothing to lose because the human condition, human life is wretched and miserable and pointless. And if, if you accept that proposition, this makes a certain amount of sense. Now, there are a couple of things to note here. Number one is he does not believe that this is a rational proof of God's existence. I believe that Pascal would hold the, the view that such a demonstration is blasphemous. It is not conclusive because it doesn't prove that there is such a thing as God. Maybe life really is wretched and miserable and pointless, and maybe it'll turn out that there is no such thing as God. He doesn't believe that, but he can't say that this demonstrates that God does exist. What it demonstrates is that you have nothing to lose. The smart money is on God. This is theology for accountants. Now, the, you might want to think about the, the, the wager as being propedeutic. In other words, it's a stimulus towards knowledge. It pushes you in the direction of religious inquiry. In other words, it is supposed to drive you to despair. You're supposed to con be convinced of the fact that human life is wretched and you've got nothing to lose, even though this doesn't prove God exists, because in fact, it may be that life is just wretched and miserable and pointless. Uh, what is it that a uh, uh, Lear's Fool says? Is it that uh, uh, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sounded fury signifying nothing? Well, all right, that's what we got. Well, it might be that that's the case. This doesn't prove that. But since that's psychologically intolerable for just about anybody, well, then in that case, perhaps we would want to accept the fact that religious inquiry is incumbent upon us. The only way to make life bearable, to prevent us from justifiably committing suicide, is the search for religious illumination that Pascal got in the night of fire. He doesn't say that you can drive the night of fire by some mathematical process. That's the kind of proud, hubristic th mathematical thinking you'd associate with the Cartesians. He says, no, God is inscrutable. He gives his grace to whom he will. But the least you can do is go look for it. That's the intention of the wager. It's a propedeutic towards religious inquiry. Now, what do we think about this? What are we supposed to think about the idea that the smart money is on God? God's a good bet. You've got nothing to lose. You're not anting up anything, so why not go for it all? Well, a couple of problems. One, it certainly seems that this will drive us to try and make contact with the divinity on account of the fact that we're self-interested and calculating and that we're inclined to to do ourselves a favor by believing in God rather than giving to God the glory and praise that he deserves. In other words, we're not doing this because God deserves to be worshipped and God is you know, the creator and origin of all things. We're doing it because we think we get something at the end. In other words, it's entirely self-interested. There's no more selfish activity than searching for God on account of the fact you think it's a good bet. Perhaps God has a special place in hell. I mean, if you know Dante's Inferno, perhaps there's a special place in hell for kind of religious accountants who do it because they think that it's a smart move, right? It's like outfoxing the tax man, right? And it has just the spiritual grandeur of, of you know, of outfoxing the tax man. It has nothing to do with religious or very little to do with religious desire. It has to do with saving your own skin. 
It is an extremely selfish kind of Christianity, and somehow that doesn't seem entirely compatible with Christianity. I mean, one would assume that if we believe in the God of the Bible, that we do so because he's the God of the Bible, not because we, we get something out of it. God doesn't owe us anything. A second problem comes in. Suppose God likes the intellectual integrity of people who are caught up with a naturalistic conception of the world. Suppose he likes people who don't lie to themselves and tell themselves pretty stories like, oh yeah, God exists and don't worry about it. As soon as you have the night of fire, which other people might describe as a psychotic episode, um, maybe he likes the idea of people being intellectually honest. Maybe he says, look, people who, who make the best rationally of the world around them are the kind of people that God is willing to favor and willing to overlook the smallest of their sins. Conceivable. Pascal doesn't offer us much room for that. He says, look, worm, the world is a vacuum. The world is miserable. If you don't search for God, you might as well cut your throat now. These are not the, the thoughts of a happy man. This is the thoughts of a morbidly introspective man that one suspects is on the brink of suicide and kind of brings himself back by whatever it is this amounts to. Uh, and he has what I would call a sort of pessimistic Augustinian conception of the human condition. People are intrinsically depraved. You started out sinful, and then as you lived your life, you got more sinful, and then your sins compounded upon each other, and by the time you, became, you came to the point where you realized what you are, and you realized what the world around you was, you had such a, a length of sins in behind you that you almost couldn't possibly uh, atone for them. Without God's grace, it would certainly be impossible. We are all carrying around Marley's chains of sin, and those of us who don't think there is such a thing have the longest possible chains. The irony of this is the kind of thing Pascal would relish. Now, there are some things that should be considered here. In the first case, the Enlightenment thinkers who followed the sort of Cartesian plan of emancipated reason generally tried to find some secular salvation, some secular, this-worldly improvement in the human condition in the realm of politics. And I think it's not just true in the Enlightenment, that's true today. Those of us who have given up the idea of biblical religion are also the ones who try and create a sort of pseudo-secular or partially secular, this-worldly salvation by improving the world through political action. Right? Politics is, in some respects, the new substitute for theology. That's where we want to get a this-worldly salvation. It's not that people stop believing in salvation, it's just they brought it down here. Well, Pascal has some things to say about that. And naturally, I mean, you can guess the tone of them. But these, these are the kind of things that you should just ruminate over. What number am I looking for? 533. Yeah. Uh, try this. I think you'll like this, this comment on politics. We always picture Plato and Aristotle wearing long academic gowns. But they were ordinary, decent people like anyone else who enjoyed a laugh with their friends. And when they amused themselves by composing their laws and politics, they did it for fun. It was the least philosophical and least serious part of their lives. The most philosophical was living simply and without fuss. If they wrote about politics, it was as if to lay down rules for a madhouse. And if they pretended to treat it as something really important, it was because they knew that the madmen they were talking to believed themselves to be kings and emperors. They humored these beliefs in order to calm down their madness with as little harm as possible. He does not like the idea of secularizing salvation. Either we get salvation in heaven, or you might as well not waste your time down here. There is no way to fundamentally improve the human condition. Death will take us all. He is, in fact, an intellectual terrorist. Uh, here's a, a nice part as well. Uh, this is, in some respects, Pascal reminds me of Nietzsche. Not necessarily, well, first of all, completely opposite in tone. 
and opposite in their relationship to religion and theology, but the fact that they both write beautiful ep epigrammatic writings and that they kind of hopscotch from one idea to the next without any necessary coherence between them. And there's a beautiful section, uh, 166, yes, um, in which he not only reminds me of Nietzsche, but also of Kierkegaard, another kind of deep, dark, morbid thinker. And his discussion here uh, will uh, kind of sting us all. He says, uh, we run heedlessly into the abyss after putting something in front of us to stop us seeing it. We move on towards inevitable extinction, trying to persuade ourselves that mortality isn't real. Was it Ernest Becker that wrote a book called The Denial of Death? Well, perhaps it is that we have a psychological need not to think about the fact that people do die, even us. And that we give ourselves distractions, we give ourselves things to do, we undertake various arbitrary projects so that we can convince ourselves that death isn't real. As soon as you do that, you fall into the Pascalian abyss, you begin to look around, wretchedness and despair, even if they weren't there to, to begin with in the human condition, are certainly there once you adopt this stance towards human life. Now, uh, the last treatment of the human condition, because there are so many good things here. I mean, this is the kind of book that I read because it's sort of perverse and fun. The things that I like about Pascal and, and Nietzsche are the things that I like about this. It's not necessarily the truth or falsehood of it, but it's so witty and learned and does kind of goad you into thinking about things and thinking in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Consider this prospect. Here's what, what our, our lives are like. <clears throat> Imagine a number of men in chains, all under sentence of death, some of whom each day are butchered in sight of the others. Those remaining see their own condition in that of the, their fellows and look at each other with grief and despair await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. Well, I think it kind of speaks for itself. We are either faced with immediate death or postponed death. Take your choice. Ultimately, your number comes up. If that doesn't drive you towards despair, I'm not quite sure what will. This morbid introspection, this obsession about death, strikes me either as true religious illumination or, psych or neurosis verging towards psychosis. It's really kind of hard to tell. How this will be interpreted depends on what century you live in, more than anything else. The tenor of our times doesn't allow for this. I mean, if you say stuff like this to your psychiatrist, he puts you in Bellevue. <laughs> it's true. If you say this back in the time of, of, the, uh, of the writing of the Bible, back at the time of the Old Testament, you're a prophet. Right? It just depends on what cultural context you're saying something like this in. If you say, oh yes, God talked to me last night, and I had the night of fire, and I, the God of Abraham and Isaac, he, he just showed up. <laughs> well, what do we do with this? I think there are two approaches, and these different ways of looking at this correspond to the two figures that I've been, or two of the figures that I've been comparing Pascal to. And I would call it, we can interpret Pascal in the spirit of Nietzsche, or we can interpret Pascal in the spirit of Kierkegaard. If we take the spirit of Kierkegaard, I think that Pascal is so morbid and so bizarre and so far out there, so extreme in his religiosity, that grudgingly Kierkegaard might have actually liked him. Now Kierkegaard, who described himself as that individual, who thought that he was blazing a religious path, would have to acknowledge that, yeah, he's roughly as morbid as I am, and yeah, he's roughly as wild in, intellectually as I am, and, Okay, this man is truly religious. Yeah, what is it that, that they say in the gospel? Go sell all you have and follow me. Well, there, everything or nothing. Yeah, what T.S. Eliot says it requires not less than everything. Well, okay, Pascal and Kierkegaard are willing to say, fine, it requires everything, I'm willing to go the whole way. That's religion. I mean, even if it's wrong, you've got to kind of admire it just for the single-minded obsession of it.
There's another approach to this, though, and I, I find this attractive as well. I, I like both Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, which is, I guess, my problem, but Nietzsche said, and this is a beautiful line as well, I will never forgive Christianity for what it did to Pascal. <laughs> no matter what else it does, it may build hospitals, it may make people nice to each other, but look what it did to Pascal. He was a great and original scientific thinker. He was a great and original mathematical thinker. He was a uniquely gifted individual, and this made him a nut. This forced him over the edge where he gave up on this world, where he devalued physical human life, where he decided to abandon science and mathematics so that he could pursue these lunatic neurotic pipe dreams. Look how that has impoverished our culture. Look at how that tortured a man who would otherwise be a noble intellect. I will never forgive Christianity for what it did to Pascal, a pregnant and kind of frightening, kind of terroristic evaluation. Now, how am I going to, how are we going to decide between these two? Well, look, I just work here. Right? I don't know how to decide between them. Flip the coin, adopt whatever stance you want, come out of Athens, come out of Jerusalem, follow Job, follow Prometheus, however you want to do it. Either, I think, is a worthwhile way of looking at this problem. Um, it leads us to the problem of what we're supposed to do with in the interpretation of religious experience. We come up with what Nietzsche described as the boundaries, or what, what Wittgenstein described as the boundaries of language and the boundaries of thought and experience. We can't go beyond those boundaries, but the journey to the edge is well worth the trip.